Quat. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 53, Pagan Reaction. A common feature of early Anglo-Saxon history, at least as presented by Bede, is what is called Pagan Reaction. Since Bede was writing an ecclesiastical history, that is, a history of the church, reactions against the spread of Christianity, of course, greatly disturbed him. Usually, these reactions took the forms of kings who aggressively reversed the policies of their Christian predecessors by ending royal patronage of the church in favour of support for traditional practitioners of pagan religiosity. Often, these reactions were popular among the populace, who took the opportunity to seize church lands and expel, sometimes even kill, priests and monks. While such reactions almost certainly were motivated by more than just religious dissatisfaction, Bede, possibly not wishing to cast any positive light on them, doesn't mention this. We're thus forced to read between the lines of his account, which presents him as mainly motivated by pagan error. As discussed in the last episode, Radwald was not a committed Christian. It seems that he supported and even engaged in both Christian and pagan worship within his household, something which is unusual by our standards and was unusual by the standards of the time, but which made sense within a polytheistic worldview. His son Eopwald was, at the time of his accession in 624, still resolutely pagan, indicating that Radwald didn't enforce a Christian conversion upon his family. Some scholars suggest that at the accession of Eopwald, the Christian faction in East Anglia was beginning to resent not wielding as much influence as Christians elsewhere. They could look, for example, to Edwin's Northumbria to see a powerful king who used that power to support and expand the church. How Eopwald responded to this is unclear, but it seems that he tried to maintain peace while remaining pagan himself. This changed, though, in 627, when Edwin, now the most powerful king in England, undertook to convert his own people, as well as those of Lindsay and East Anglia, areas over which he seemingly exerted influence as an overlord. Bede claims that through Edwin's influence, Eopwald was convinced to become a Christian. How true this is remains impossible to say, since Bede is the only source we have for the event, However, in 627, in a reverse of the relationship that had existed between Edwin and his father, Eopwald undertook the formal process of becoming a Christian and reputedly received a baptism, most likely with Edwin as his sponsor. With Eopwald now formally a Christian, he was charged with the task of spreading the faith among his people. However, shortly after his baptism, Eopwald was murdered by a pagan noble named Richbert who then seized the throne of East Anglia for himself. This sudden turn of events leaves the sincerity of Eopwald's conversion open to debate, since he didn't have the opportunity to back up his baptism with actions. Bede may be correct when he claims that Edwin convinced Eopwald, but it would be foolish to ignore the fact that Edwin was at this point the most powerful king in England. I've already discussed in previous episodes how baptism and conversion rapidly became a tool of overlordship and power since they inherently situated a recipient as subordinate to the ruler who provided or enforced them. We cannot ignore the fact then that in 627, Eopwald had become subordinate to Edwin, thus acknowledging the Northumbrian as his overlord. 
seen in this light, Rick Bert's murder of the king may have been about more than just religious differences. Rick Bert may well have represented a faction of the East Anglian nobility unhappy with taking a subordinate role to the Northumbrians. In this context, Christianity may well have become a political issue, but it would be misleading to suggest that it was the only cause for Eobwald's murder. Nevertheless, the killing of Eobwald provided the Anglo-Saxon church with its first martyr, since the king is the first person in England recorded to have been killed for his Christianity. There's a lot of later myth-making here, especially since we don't really know that much about Eobwald or the nature of his conversion, but the image of Eopwald as a martyr and then later as a saint did survive into the early 20th century. Today, though, he is largely forgotten, never having been officially canonised by any church. But he nevertheless is an interesting footnote in the history of English Christianity, even if his own Christianity must forever remain somewhat suspect. After Eopwald's murder, Rickbert may have become king of East Anglia. It's not 100% clear that he did. Bede doesn't explicitly claim that he did. His only mention of Rigbert is in his reference to Eopwald's murder, and besides this, he merely says that East Anglia remained in error, i.e. pagan, for three years after Eopwald's murder. If Rickbert became king then, his rule left no definite mark in the literary or archaeological evidence. He is one of the names sometimes floated for the man buried in Sutton Hoo ship burial, alongside Radwald and Eopwald himself. But if the image of him as a pagan reactionary is accurate, then it seems difficult to reconcile this with the hybrid pagan Christian materials found in the grave. If, for the sake of argument, the man buried there is Rickbert, though, his burial at Sutton Hoo would reflect a remarkable assertion of legitimacy. Since that burial site was the traditional cemetery of the Wuffingas dynasty, Rick Betts imposing himself on it would suggest that either he was a Wuffing himself, or that he sought to bind himself with East Anglia's legitimate royal dynasty, perhaps indicating some anxiety that he wasn't seen as truly legitimate in life. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey! 
History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this, when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, or even when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts by pledging to one of the show's patron tiers. And speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a shout out to Jeff Hamilton, who recently became a patron. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope that you're enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. The three years of error associated with Rickbert came to an end in 630, when two new kings appear on the historical scene. Seabert, son or possibly stepson of Radwald, and Edrich, who is said to have been Seabert's kinsman, but exactly how isn't clear. Seabert was a Christian in 630, and he applied his newfound power to the task of converting the East Anglians. With the help of a Burgundian priest named Felix, Seabert established the first bishopric in East Anglia in a place called Domok, the location of which is now lost, but which was probably in Suffolk. With this Felix, he also established the first school in East Anglia, for the express purpose of teaching boys Latin, so that they could eventually become priests themselves. By establishing a bishopric and a school then, Seabert was effectively establishing Christian infrastructure in East Anglia, something that hadn't existed up until that point, which would have made formally converting the kingdom and the populace extremely difficult. If you'll think back to the Northumbrian series, a theme that came up in that was the difference between the Canterbury or the Roman style of ecclesiastical practice and the Irish style of ecclesiastical practice, both of which circulated in early Anglo-Saxon England, and which, in the early 7th century, began to become increasingly hostile towards each other, ultimately culminating in the Synod of Whitby, at which it was agreed that the English church would follow Roman custom. Seabert, in his conversion of East Anglia, seems to have cultivated both the Roman and the Irish styles of Christianity. We can say this because, in addition to Felix, who, being from the continent, was firmly wedded to the Roman style of ecclesiastical practice, Seabert also welcomed a group of Irish monks, led by Fursi, who later became a saint, to establish themselves in a monastery near a Roman fort called Knobherresburg in Old English, which today is probably the village of Burcastle near Greater Yarmouth in Norfolk. This royal patronage of both Felix and Fursi indicates that in East Anglia, then, we see a very rare instance of peaceful coexistence between the Roman and the Irish styles of Christianity, 
that would later become overtly hostile, but which for now, probably united by a common missionary aim, were able to put their differences aside. The image of Siobert that prevails in the historical literature is one of an intensely pious king. That is certainly the image that was promoted by Bede, who has really nothing but glowing praise for Siobert. Edgerich, on the other hand, may well have not been a Christian at all. Bede never alludes to his baptism or to his participating in the missionary activities of his kinsmen. Certainly he was not openly opposed to these, probably because he functioned more as a sub-king to Siobert than a true equal. But Edrich's religious convictions remain deeply mysterious. If he was pagan, clearly he was not militant about it, probably indicating that a lot of pagans in East Anglia were similarly fairly unconcerned about the spread of the new religion. Since he was a kinsman of Siobert, it is entirely possible that he was willing to tolerate his kinsman's religious feelings and missions so long as his dynasty remained on the throne. What is not mysterious about Edrich is the bind he was left in when Siobert chose to abdicate the throne to become a monk in the monastery that would later become the Abbey of Bury St Edmunds. The precise date of this abdication is unknown, but it cannot have come at a good time, since in 633, Edwin, the East Anglian's staunch ally, was killed by Pender of Mercia and Cadwallon ap Cadvan, leaving all of England south of the Humber exposed to Mercian aggression. After regrouping following their success in Northumbria, in 636 the Mercians launched an invasion of an East Anglia that at this time was certainly being ruled only by Edrich. Despite amassing a mighty army to resist the Mercians, Edrich still knew that he was outnumbered and needed something more to inspire his men. He recalled the affection with which Siobert was viewed by his people, and so sent a messenger to the former king pleading for him to leave his monastery and lead the army. Siobert, totally focused on his religious life, refused. In response, the messengers, overcome with panic and desperation, seized the former king and forcibly dragged him out of the monastery, taking him all the way to the battlefield. There, the monk refused to take up any weapons or to fight in the coming battle. Opting to keep Siobert there as a symbol, even if he wouldn't actually do any fighting, Edrich chose to meet the Mercians on the battlefield. In the ensuing bloodshed, the defenceless Siobert was killed, as was Edrich himself. The broken East Anglians then fled the field and left the Mercians to ravage the kingdom unopposed. From this point on, East Anglia was permanently eclipsed by its more powerful neighbours in the west and the south. It remained independent though, and continued to exist into the 9th century, as I'll discuss in upcoming episodes, but it never again achieved the same level of influence that it had in the early 600s under the leadership of Radwald. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join me again next time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.